welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. What makes a spiritual path so difficult is our habitual tendencies. Finding a way to break them is a challenge. Jetsama Akon Lamo gives us many ways to do this, and using the Vinaya teachings of the Buddha is very effective. In Buddhist tradition, there are a great many different very concrete, very solid sort of rules and regulations that happens at one level of the teaching and at different levels of the teaching, uh, the understanding that one gets from the teaching, the, the, the conclusions that one should come to are more and more abstract. They are uh, not more difficult to understand, well in some ways they are perhaps, but they are more and more having to do with the state of one's mind, with one's inner posture, rather than actual physical rules. But there are a whole set of physical rules and regulations that are sort of the, the fundamental um, display of the path, the foundation of the path. These rules and regulations are called the Vinaya, and they're actually quite extensive. We are taught that there are several, or quite a few things that no one who considers themselves a spiritual practitioner, who considers themselves, I guess, a Buddhist at any level, or a follower of enlightenment or a reacher for enlightenment, uh, should ever do. There are some things we should never do, such as um, killing. We should never kill. Um, we should never become intoxicated. We should never steal. We should never lie about our own level of realization. That's a very, very important one. Actually considered to be one of the most damaging of all things that you can do to yourself. To lie about one's experience or one's level of realization. And that includes to propagate uh, or, or to, to feed an inner delusion about one's own enlightenment. Uh, in other words, don't kid yourself about it either. That actually is one of the most damaging um, things that one can do to one's path, to one's practice. And there are uh, many different things that, that we are told we should not do. Each of these things is important. Each of these things are very relevant and they're very concrete. When it comes to something like not killing, it's easy to understand when you're killing or not killing. You can you have the choice, of course, of killing an insect or killing an, an animal or, or even killing another human being. And you always know when you make that choice. It's pretty concrete, pretty cut and dry. 
you know when you're doing it and when you're not doing it. And there are even heinous crimes, crimes that are considered to be absolutely guaranteeing a lower rebirth. And uh, those heinous crimes, or some of them, are crimes like killing one's mother and father, or father, uh, of this life. That is considered to be a heinous crime. Hard to understand why that's a heinous crime. Um, why would it be different from killing any other human being? Well, first of all, well, there are many different reasons. First of all, in Buddhist practice, one considers that all sentient beings are one's mother and father. All sentient beings uh, have had so much experience with us, so much time with us, and we've lived so many lives, that all sentient beings are considered to have been, everyone that we meet, that is, to have been our mother and father in some previous life. It is considered that all sentient beings, therefore, have given us birth, and therefore all sentient beings are responsible for bringing us to this particular time and space grid in which we do have the opportunity to achieve realization. Therefore, we are extremely grateful to all, to all sentient beings. And in Buddhist tradition, we are taught that we should practice as though we were paying back these motherly sentient beings for the great gift of life, the great gift of this opportunity that they have given us. We should think like that. And that's how strongly, how compassionately we should care for sentient beings. And perhaps another reason is that if we understand our true mother and father uh, in a spiritual sense, we understand that our true mother and father is actually the Buddha nature, the red and white bodhicitta, the red and white, um, we call tigle or energy or, or sustaining force, organizing principle, uh, that is the true spiritual parent in this lifetime. And if we were to kill our physical parents, it would be a great act against that fantastic, uh, inconceivable blessing of the red and white or male and female bodhicitta, an actual act against our own nature. So in a deeper sense it has symbolic meaning and in a literal sense there are really good reasons why we should not harm our parents in any way and that it will very much harm our practice. There are other heinous crimes, and one heinous crime is to draw the blood of a bodhisattva, to actually harm and draw the blood of a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva means an awakening being, one who has come to the earth in order to benefit others. Obviously, bodhisattvas are few and far between, hard to come by, and uh, not good to waste them. So in that very superficial sense, we should do what we can to keep them kicking as long as possible. And in the deeper sense, if one harms or, or is thoughtless toward or are, are, are purposefully harmful toward a bodhisattva, then one is actually, again, harming one's own enlighten, enlightening uh, movement. One is uh, harming one's own enlightened state. So symbolically, that is also an extremely negative thing to do. One should never bring harm to one's guru. One should never talk negatively about one's guru. That is considered to be a heinous crime. Um, in Vajrayana tradition, one's guru is essential. One cannot receive the teachings of the Buddha. One cannot travel on the path of the Dharma. One cannot have relationship with the Sangha, which are the three objects of refuge. Uh, one cannot have any of those blessings without the Lama or the guru.
the Lama is responsible and embodies all three blessings. Therefore, if we talk badly about the Lama, if we talk badly about the Guru, we are cutting our relationship with the three precious jewels. That is one of the most heinous crimes that one can do. One is actually, literally, spiritually slitting one's own throat. So one should never talk negatively about the Lama. Really under any circumstances, and not even casually, that should not be done. It, another uh, crime that one should, should never commit is to bring disharmony in the Sangha. Because actually the Sangha is very precious. Uh, that's both the ordained Sangha and the lay Sangha, those that practice Buddhism. But particularly in the case of the ordained Sangha, if one speaks badly about them or brings dissension between them, uh, one is actually uh, breaking up the, the stronghold that the Dharma has in the world in that the, the ordained Sangha are, are literally responsible for the upkeep and propagation of the Dharma. But it also applies to the lay Sangha. The lay Sangha is the non-ordained practicing community of religious people who are also responsible for maintaining the Buddha Dharma and, and for propagating it and for supporting it in a, a very real physical sense. They are responsible for that. That is their given responsibility. So that if we cause dissension in them and cause the spiritual community to break up or have disharmony, we are planting a very negative seed that will in the future ripen as uh, the, the disintegration of the Dharma on the earth. So we have to be extremely careful, extremely careful of how we treat the, the precious Sangha. They are one of the three precious jewels. We should never defame the Dharma. We should never say that the Dharma is negative in any way because the Dharma is responsible for bringing others to enlightenment and there are so many uncountable realized beings that have occurred in this on this planet alone due to the vitality profundity and purity of the Dharma uh, me, not just Lord Buddha not just Guru Rinpoche but many uh, practitioners have attained realization due to the power of the Dharma and so, of course, we have to preserve the Dharma, and we have no wish to do anything that would cause the Dharma to disintegrate, even if we ourselves are not very committed in our practice, or even if we ourselves are not particularly Buddhist practitioners. Still, we should never do anything to defame the Dharma. So these are called heinous crimes, and these crimes are very clearly taught. There's actually quite... Uh, clear guidelines as to how to fulfill these obligations and how to not make mistakes like that. And the cause and effect relationships, you know, the, the idea that if you were to do this thing, then this will be the result. They're very clearly outlined. Uh, clearly, if one commits a heinous crime, one will fall to a lower realm. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, clearly, one will disintegrate one's precious rebirth in the sense that this birth, rebirth will no longer be a potential uh, uh, vehicle for enlightenment if one were to commit these heinous crimes. So these things are very well laid out. But what is far more confusing than listening to this kind of teaching is when one addresses the idea of the more subtle crimes or 
improprieties that one can commit on the path. These are the ones that are so difficult to understand. And they can't really all be covered. How can, how can one cover the subtlety of an individual mind when each individual mind is so different from another mind and the way that it formulates its thought and, 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 and practices its, its method and how, it, how its patterns come together. In the teaching, actually, I think if one were to find comb through the teaching, one would find every answer, one would find every indication necessary. But the difficulty is that our minds are so subtly attuned and we are so much seemingly individuals in the way that our patterns come together, our karmic habitual tendencies come together, that we may not recognize our own patterns in the teaching. I personally feel that there is nothing that Lord Buddha did not cover. In his omniscience, I really think it would be the height of arrogance to say, oh, he didn't know about that one. I, I love it. I think it's actually funny, and I must admit to this, Then students come to me and say, well, you see, I know about Buddhism and everything, and you're telling me I should be compassionate and I could practice, but I have this particular problem. You know, as though the Buddha came to the earth in his great omniscience and omnipotence and somehow overlooked that one, that somehow our minds were so inventive so original and our particular situation so wonderfully unique that somehow the Buddha in his omniscience just missed that one. You may not find that as amusing as I do, but I find that pretty amusing since having talked to sentient beings for quite a number of years now and uh, having been involved in spiritual consultation and, and, and just teaching sentient beings, I have noticed that um, each one that comes to me with a completely unique and individual story is very much like the last one I talked to. And, um, you know, each one who thinks that his particular story is just so blow your mind, explode your brain different is uh, basically speech number 42 in blue. You know, it's... You had to be there, but it's, it's kind of a funny thing. The difference is, though, that we may not recognize in the teaching the solution to our problems. This, this may be the problem. This may be what actually happens. And the difficulty is that we also don't have such great access to the teachings that we can pinpoint exactly, you know, a problem in our mind, a, a thing that's happening in our mind, and then look for rule number 379 and find the answer. And then, our, even if we could, our practice is not so sincere and not so determined and not so pure that having found the answer, we're really going to take it seriously and practice it. Actually, we would much rather continue with our problem and convince ourselves that we are unique. That seems to be more comforting to us in a bizarre way. Rather than applying the antidote, we seem to like to perpetuate the difficulty. Because the antidote is a whole lot less fun. But the problem with that kind of thinking is that each one of us is really deeply responsible. And actually the, Buddha, the religion of, or the philosophy of Buddhism and the teachings of the Buddhas and all of the enlightened and realized lamas that have uh, engaged in practice throughout time is such that we are taught this is a religion of responsibility. This is a religion of personal, individual 
responsibility. That there, we should not think, and, and there cannot be some external force that is holding a cosmic book somewhere up in heaven that is making little X's and checks in our book uh, that will be totaled up on Judgment Day or at the end of time or at the end of this life, whenever that might be. That's not what this religion is about. We don't have a belief like that. We feel that what we are experiencing is a sense of continuum, a, content, a sense of the cycle of death and rebirth based on our own belief in self-nature as being inherently real and our holding to that belief in such a way as to create the illusion of continuum. And that actually what we are bathing in is our own mind stream which appears to us to be kind of like a karmic pocket of cause and effect relationships that arise seemingly externally and affect us internally. That's what the illusion is. But in fact that's not true. We are experiencing the content of our mind streams. We are experiencing the illusion of continuum, but it's only based on the belief in self-nature as being inherently real. Only self can actually move through time and space in such a way as to create the illusion of continuum. Therefore, the nature of our mind stream is the nature of our experience. Literally, if we are habitually inclined toward anger, literally we will find many things in our environment, and that is, again, the illusion that we are operating under is the idea of something being external as opposed to internal, as something being other as opposed to self. Literally, that environment will be filled with enemies, filled with things to argue with. We'll never run out of things to argue with. We'll never run out of problems. We'll never run out of issues. The angry person always has an issue to justify his or her anger. Always. And you can never fight with them about that. You can never argue that down. It's always the case. And they're always right. Similarly, if we, are, if we have the strong habitual tendency of self-absorption, that is, considering ourselves to be the center of the universe and considering only our needs to be important and meaningful, Literally, our environmental experience, the experience of our environment that we seem to be having will somehow agree with that and that everything will seem to be happening to us. Everything will seem to be victimizing us. And similarly, everything will seem to be so much external that we will experience an intense loneliness. But that loneliness is only a reflection of our self-absorption. We are no more or no less alone or lonely or experiencing that kind of thing in a, in a, in a, in a truer sense, in a, in a more natural sense, than any other sentient beings. And obviously, some sentient beings feel extremely lonely and some do not. We are no more lonely than the Buddha, and the Buddha does not feel lonely. 
The condition is the same, it is the experience that is different, and it occurs due to the condition of our mind stream. Well, now here's the rub. We are so convinced of the accuracy of our experience, we are so convinced of the validity of it, that we have no way to check up. We really cannot check ourselves up. We really have a very difficult time looking at ourselves and seeing if we are revolving in hatred at the moment, or generally. Because when we look at ourselves, if we have that habitual tendency of hatred, and if that is the experience that we are having, if that is the content of our mind stream, it will seem, no matter how hard we look, as though we are having experiences that require us to respond in a certain way. We must respond in a certain way. And there's really no choice. That if we don't respond in a certain way, we'll kind of be saps, or maybe we'll be unsafe, maybe someone will really hurt us. It will seem as though we have to run, or that we have to be angry, or that we have to respond in a certain regard. Similarly, if we are involved in the tendency of, 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 of habitual self-absorption, if we proceed with the intention of checking up on ourselves, we will become absorbed in our checking up. And we will become absorbed in our feeling about our checking up. And we will become absorbed in our response to what we see when we check up. And the self-absorption will merely continue. So it's very hard to examine one's mind on such a subtle level. Yet, the Buddha teaches us that this is a philosophy of ultimate responsibility and that we must constantly check ourselves up. Well, how can we do that? It looks like if we try to check up whether or not the world is rose-colored, wearing rose-colored glasses makes it very difficult. How do we get past this habitual tendency? How do we get past the content of our own mind stream? Well, that's the catch-22. We can't until we begin to purify it. And it seems that we don't know how to purify it until we can see more clearly. Therefore, we have to rely on the teachings that have been given to us by those who have achieved enlightenment and have ripped off those rose-colored glasses, have seen our experience actually clearer than we, without taint. Because we can't, we cannot really see our experience in an impartial way. We're always cut, caught up in our experience while we're trying to view our experience. Always our habitual tendencies will occlude our vision. Our karmic propensity will be the ruling force. So now we have to look to a teaching that comes to us from the mind of enlightenment. The Buddha tells us that all sentient beings have within their mind stream hatred, greed, and ignorance. Now this is not good news to us. We don't like this. This is bad news. And we don't even like to think of ourselves as having hatred, greed, and ignorance in our mind stream. Actually, it has become fashionable in this day and age with uh, certain new age philosophies that have come out that to view oneself in that way is actually detrimental. The Buddha argues with that, not so, not so. 
We need to be accepting of the fact that all sentient beings have the habitual tendency of anger, of grasping, and of, and of blindness, of, of inability to truly discern. Those things are also called hatred, greed, and ignorance. Anger, uh, grasping, and the inability to, to discern. Now hearing those different words, anger, and grasping, and the inability to, to discern, you know you have those. You don't like hatred, greed, and ignorance, I know, but you know that you have the other three that I've just renamed in my arrogance. And the Buddha teaches us that it is necessary to, to understand and accept that we and all sentient beings have that condition in order to be able to overcome it. The Buddha teaches us that it is not acceptable, it is not a true path, and it has no real validity to walk around saying, I am love and light, everything is love and light, all I ever feel is love, da 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 and you are wonderful. Kind of like, I'm okay, you're okay, and there's nothing to worry about. The Buddha teaches us that that kind of philosophy is kind of like putting a band-aid on an ulcer. Uh, for a temporary bit of time, it may feel as though you have overcome something, and basically it's going to feel about as good as covering up an ulcer with a band-aid so that you don't have to look at it anymore. But underneath that ulcer is still opened. It is still infected. It is still, I don't mean to be gross, but it's still oozing. It's still happening. And in fact, without the light and air that it requires to heal, it'll probably get worse under the surface. The Buddha teaches us that with loving kindness and true regard, we should love ourselves enough to be able to deal with the fact that we do have hatred, greed, and ignorance within our mind stream. But what causes us to be worthy is not some kind of plastic, prefabbed, faky stuff about that we are all love and life, light, everything is perfect, but rather what causes us to have regard for ourselves is to understand that our true nature is the Buddha nature. Yes, we do have this habitual tendency of hatred, greed, and ignorance, but our true nature is the mind of enlightenment itself. But having been involved in this habitual tendency to experience hatred, greed, and ignorance, we have not tasted that mind. Only having not tasted that mind can we ever be satisfied with putting some kind of plastic prefab band-aid on our condition and thinking that that band-aid is a goal. If for one moment we could taste that nature, just for one moment, to awaken to the luminous, pristine, pure, primordial wisdom state that is our nature, never for a moment would we be satisfied with anything else. One taste, one morsel, would realize that giving ourselves anything besides meaningful practice and the meaningful experience of awakening is like being beggars eating crumbs under the table of a tremendous banquet. Why would you settle for some prefabricated belief about yourself that someone else said, I am good, everything is love and light, when in truth, you have the potential to taste your own, own true nature, to awaken to that Buddha nature, to that perfected state, which is the state beyond suffering, the state free of any contrivance, the supremely pure, luminous, uncontrived, natural primordial wisdom state. 
But in order to taste that state, one has to deal with the subtleties of one's mind. One has to take responsibility for one's path. It will not do to sit around twiddling one's thumbs and wait for that state to appear. It will not come of its own accord because it's already here. How can it come of its own accord? You are as much the Buddha, you are as much in that nature as you will ever be. That nature doesn't need establishing. It's as big as it's ever going to get. It's as here as it's ever going to get. It is as naturally occurring as it's ever going to be. So what's the problem? The problem is our perceptual experience. It doesn't do to wait for that state. That state is established. What must be dealt with is our own perceptual experience, the content of our mind stream. And for that, only we can be responsible. We have to roll up our sleeves and dig in. We have to not only not commit the major and heinous crimes, but we have to deal with the subtlety of our mind. We can't slick on by whenever we have a hateful or judgmental thought. We can't play howdy-doody with ourselves and think that it's just okay to say, oh yeah, things are not, all bad, not so bad, things are great, yeah, I'm a really great person. That will never be enough, because you will never understand your nature. Your nature is the precious awakened state, that's true. But you are firmly involved in the habitual tendency of ordinariness. Experiencing ordinary view, not awakening to your nature, not understanding. Therefore, go at that ordinary view, break it up, pacify it, deliver it. Root out any hatred, greed, and ignorance from your own mind stream. Only you can know where the root is, where it actually begins. Only you can actually find it. You're the one thinking the thought. You are the one beginning the habit. You are the one letting yourself get away with it. You are the one. You're the one that's holding your perceptual experience in your hands. None other. No one else is responsible for it. Isn't that great news? Well, people say, yeah, sort of. What I'd like to think is that I can take a pill and then, then it will be gone. That would be great. Or I can say just the right prayer so many times. Then it will be gone. Wouldn't that be great? No, it wouldn't. You know why? Because then maybe that pill wouldn't be available to you. You might not have enough money for it. Or whoever's doling them out much might not like the way you look. Or maybe uh, in order to, to, to wait for that pill, maybe you have to rely on a myth. Well, what if the myth's not true? Wouldn't it be awful not to know until it was too late? So you had no more time to do anything about it? Ultimately, isn't it better to know that the key to your own enlightenment is in your hands? in your hands you have the potential to say yes or no that, that's, that's your potential you have the potential to practice you have the potential to begin those circumstances that will bring about the precious awakening no one can offer you your Buddha nature no one can give you enlightenment and no one can give you happiness 
No one can do that for you. But the good news is that means that you hold the precious jewel in your own hands. You can. You can. And I don't buy the idea that you are so faulted, or so neurotic, or so addicted, or so weird, or so funny looking, in some strange way, that you are the one exception to that. It's not true. You can make a decision to continue in your suffering, and you can make a decision to stop. That's what you can do. You can understand that cause and effect relationships are exacting and that should you engage in hateful and judgmental thinking that your life will be experienced as a hateful and judgmental thing. You should understand cause and effect sufficiently to know that if you continue to revolve in self-absorption as opposed to generosity, as opposed to truly caring in a compassionate way for the welfare of others, that if you should think like that, continue to think like that, that you will be the one who will be lonely. Understand cause and effect and get busy. The most difficult path I think that one can practice is this, which, of the, which is the gentlest of all paths. This path of non-violence, this path of loving kindness is the gentlest of all paths. Nowhere do we have wars in this religion to propagate our faith. Never. It is the gentlest, the sweetest, the kindness of all methods of achieving realization. But it is the most difficult. And one has to be firm and courageous like a warrior in order to practice this gentle path. Because there are enemies. And the enemies are our own delusion. We have to be strong and we have to gear ourselves up about that, there is no question. And there is no other means. In the beginning, we must rely on the teachings of those who have achieved realization before us. They have told us that we have hatred, greed, and ignorance in our minds, and we must accept that. They have told us that there are antidotes that we can apply, such as generosity and kindness, such as meditation and practice to pierce through ignorance, such as loving. They have told us that these are the antidotes. Therefore, in the beginning, we must accept that these are the truths about ourselves and these are the antidotes. But the one thing that we cannot take our eyes off of, even for a moment, is the goal. The goal isn't just to follow some rules. The goal is to reveal our nature as it is. As pure, as luminous, as natural, as all-pervasive, as innately pristine as anything could ever possibly be and, and to the degree that we ourselves cannot understand how perfect that nature is. That's what we have to keep our eye on. That is the goal, to awaken to that nature. We don't think that we have hatred, greed, and ignorance just to chastise ourselves. There's a point to it. Because hatred, greed, and ignorance is not our nature. 
It is our habitual tendency, and it's very strong, but it is not our nature. Our nature is pure luminosity. Our nature is wisdom. Our nature is uncontrived primordial view. Our nature is the fully awakened bodhicitta, loving kindness. But to pretend that you have realized that nature, that you have awakened to that nature, to fake it will only bring you further away from the goal. I'll tell you a secret. I've had several students, in fact quite, quite a good number, that when they first came to me, the first thing that they said to me in private was how well they were doing spiritually. That they really felt a great deal of generosity and loving kindness and, and that they were really special people and that they had a vision and they had a mission and, 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 and my understanding of that was, well, yeah, as soon as we can get past that, we can get to work. And my efforts often with these students have been to, please excuse me, but pick that scab. Pick that band-aid. Just keep picking at it, picking at it, picking at it, until we can reveal the strong habitual tendencies that cause that person to need to fake it like that. Let's get at it. Let's get busy. Don't play that game with yourself and don't ever play it with your teacher. To pretend that everything's all sweetness and light and you're just as sweet as you can be. Your nature is sweeter than you can ever fake. Sweeter than you can ever pretend. And it has nothing to do with the way you act. It has to do with the posture of your practice. It has to do with how strongly you root out the age-old, many ages-old, habitual tendencies that we all share and purify the mind completely until that nature in all its glory is fully revealed without faking it. How can we be responsible for such subtlety? So difficult. We have to spend time looking inside, really examining. We have to spend time following the Buddhist teachings. The Buddha says we have this problem. Let's act on it. Let's practice the antidote. Let's practice generosity. Let's stop acting like we're kind. Let's be kind. There's a difference. Acting like you're kind, acting like you're all sweetness and light, is not the same as really doing something to benefit sentient beings. There's a difference in the payoff. One is all about you, and the other is really about benefiting sentient beings. Let's stop acting like all we ever feel is love and light. Let's get at the root of our mental disturbance. Let's examine the cause of judgment and hatred. Let's root it out. Let's begin to practice something different. Let's meditate on equanimity. Let's really act as though we believe that all sentient beings are equal. Not only all humans. Not only blacks and whites and 
lower class and upper class. Not like that. That's baby stuff. Let's act as though what the Buddha taught is true. All sentient beings are equal. That we are in fact equal to cockroaches. And they are equal to us. All sentient beings are equal. And you know how you really have to practice that? You have to think like this. If all sentient beings are equal and I'm only one, then their welfare is far more important than mine. Best I stop thinking about myself so much and get busy benefiting them. How can I help them to be free of their suffering? How can I help them to receive the teaching or whatever is necessary in order to practice, to achieve, to achieve enlightenment? They are much more important than I am. These are the real antidotes. And these have nothing to do with faking it. In the beginning, practicing those antidotes is not natural. Our efforts are stilted, jerky, difficult, so hard. You're not going to feel loving kindness the first time you set out to practice it. But you've got to grit your teeth and do it in a disciplined, yes, disciplined fashion. And eventually, as your habitual tendencies change, it will feel natural. It will feel natural. But in the beginning, love is a discipline. And the mind must be disciplined to practice it. Don't wait around for the warm, gushy feeling of waking up and thinking, this is the day I'm going to practice love. It isn't like that, and that's a stupid day to wait for anyway. First of all, it's never going to happen. And if it does, it'll last about ten minutes until, you know, the kid drops a bowl of cereal on the floor or um, something horrendous happens. You get a letter from school telling you that three of your children are failing. These are the kind of things that really mess up our commitment to practice loving kindness. So you have to keep on trying, keep on plugging. Make your practice solid. Burn long and hot like coal. Don't burn up hard and fast like paper. Practice sincerely. Practice deeply. Practice in a subtle way so that you can really pacify the unfortunate habitual tendencies within your mind stream. Check yourself up and follow the teaching and apply the antidote. It's that simple. That's the secret of the universe. Everybody's waiting for the secret of the universe. Oh, what great one is the secret of the universe? That's it, hard work. Because the nature is already established and you don't have to do anything to make that better. So please think of these teachings and utilize them. If you utilize them, they're of some benefit. If you don't utilize it, forget it. You might as well have gone to a movie. To hear them is not enough. It's what you do when you go home that really counts. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. 
For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.